Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, just fine, enjoying the fall weather. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, We had Canadian Thanksgiving with our parents yesterday, and... I'm not sure if it's something I ate, but I have been feeling a little bit... um, You got the COVID. I don't. I don't. I want to make it very clear. (laughs) I do not. Um, Patient zero to our parents. Yeah, I... uh, How dare you? No. Spurious accusations. In other news, Mm -hmm. uh, we have a new friend named Jack. He's a pumpkin. That's right. We made a jack-o'-lantern. That's right. We've been living in an apartment since we started living together, and for most of the history of this show. And so in Halloween's past, like, we couldn't have a jack-o'-lantern. So now that we're in a house, we are very excited. And while I was working on prep for this episode, Sarah went and just carved a jack-o'-lantern. And he is so lovely, and Sarah did such know, a great job. I don't job. know if he wants to be lovely. He is, he's got this great smug, like, expression. Oh, yeah. We should probably post some pictures for the social medias. Sure. I will when this episode goes up. All right. This episode is not about pumpkins. No. As far as I know. No. Um, what are we watching? Well, Sarah, today's episode is monumental. Because we are watching Bride of the Monster from 1955, and it is our first Ed Wood movie. So it's going to be chock full. Of what? Information. Yes, that's so true. We haven't covered Ed Wood before. Yes, that's true. That is absolutely true. <laughs> Did you think I was making a joke? I wasn't sure what was going on. We're going to get splinters from all of the goody wood in here. Gross. I don't want to get splinters from Edward. <laughs> you put me on the spot. I don't know. Okay. So, this is our first Edward movie for the show. And today, I think most people are familiar with Edward from the Tim Burton biopic made about him that starred Johnny Depp. Yeah. Johnny Depp is pretty good in that. Um, I don't know if people are super into Johnny Depp, given his domestic violence. Issues, yeah, Stuff, sure. you know, everyone has a different tolerance level, but he does do a pretty good job as Ed Wood. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. I mean, the standout is Martin Landau doing Bella Lugosi, for sure. The making of this movie makes up, like, a large portion of the movie Ed Wood. So, if you are familiar with the movie Ed Wood, a lot of the stories I'm going to be telling today will sound familiar. That being said... I think it would be dereliction of duty for us to just say, like, watch go watch Ed, Ed Wood. Wood. And then watch Brad the Monster. <laughs> right. And then just, like, call it a day. Like, we don't... <laughs> You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. Right. We didn't say, like, go watch Gods and Monsters for our Bride of Frankenstein episode or go watch Shadow of the Vampire for our Nosferatu episode. Not that that would have been a accurate movie to watch <laughs> for that episode. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so so I'm going to tell you all the stuff about this movie, even if you have seen the Tim Burton film. Give it to me. Give me the wood. <laughs> <laughs> so Edward Davis Wood Jr. was born on October 10th, 1924. Oh, we're recording this on October 11th. Yeah. So like almost his birthday, just mm-hmm. after his birthday. Uh, anyways, he was born in Poughkeepsie, New York. His father was a custodian who worked for the post office, and his mother had always wanted a girl, so she dressed young Ed in girls' clothing growing up. According to Wood, this created a connection in his mind between wearing women's clothing and being loved, thus leading to the creation of his female alter ego, Shirley, who existed for the purpose of his cross-dressing in adult life. As a young child, uh, he was what we would now call 
a huge nerd. <laughs> uh, he loved drama, comics, pulp magazines, westerns, serials, sci-fi, horror, movies, and the occult. Uh, his favorite actors were Buck Jones and Bella Lugosi. He would skip school to go to the movie theater in the afternoon, and one of his first jobs was as a cinema usher. A few months after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Marine Corps and was assigned to the 2nd Defense Battalions. Wood would later claim to have faced heavy combat and that his front teeth were knocked out by a Japanese rifleman, requiring his use of dentures. Examination of his military records, however, shows this to be a falsehood. Wood was indeed present at the Battle of Tarawa, but not in combat. He worked recovering bodies from the battlefield afterwards. Health problems kept him on clerical duties for the majority of his enlistment, and his teeth were removed piecemeal in a series of operations by Navy dentists. Wood would later say that he was more afraid of being wounded than dying because he was terrified that a combat medic would discover he was wearing a bra and panties under his uniform. In 1947, Wood moved to Hollywood, trying to break in writing and directing TV pilots, commercials, and cheap westerns, which didn't sell and were never aired or released. His 1948 play, Casual Company, based on his unpublished novel about his Marine Corps experiences, opened to negative reviews. By 1952, he was living with fellow wannabe filmmaker Alex Gordon and dating wannabe actress Dolores Fuller. Gordon was Gene Autry's publicist, and he had served in the British Army before moving to Hollywood after the war. Together, Gordon and Wood collaborated on a script to a Western, which they called The Outlaw Marshal. It starred Western actor Johnny Carpenter and was directed by John Wayne's stuntman, Yakima Canute. The film went over budget, and... That's not good for a Western. No, and it encountered legal problems when real art pictures attempted to release a film under the same name. Uh, real art, you may recall, was the film that acquired the rights to all of Universal's pre-rank organization movies and were re-releasing them in the 1950s. And they had gotten so successful at that that they were starting to bankroll like new movies for them to release themselves. So Gordon hired a lawyer, Samuel Arkoff, to represent him in a lawsuit against Real Art Pictures. The lawsuit brought Arkoff into contact with Real Art ad executive James Nicholson. The film was eventually released in 1954 as The Lawless Rider, but Arkoff and Nicholson hit it off during the lawsuit, and they went on to found American Releasing Corporation uh, in 1955 with Alex Gordon as a producer. ARC would later find greater fame after it renamed itself American International Pictures, or AIP, which we'll be talking about a lot as we go through the 50s and 60s and 70s. Okay. It was Alex Gordon who introduced Wood to his childhood idol, Bella Lugosi, who had fallen on very hard times in Hollywood. Yes. I think we mentioned last episode that the last time we saw Bella Lugosi was scared to death. That's right, and that was eight years ago in 1947. Yeah. In 1948, he made his last picture for a major studio, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, where he appeared for the second and last time on film as Dracula, a role his manager successfully shamed Universal International into giving to Lugosi. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was the last of the Monster Rally movies, but it was not Lugosi's last appearance as the character of Dracula, as his most regular source of income throughout his life was appearing in various productions of the stage play, uh, which he did to support not only himself, but also his wife Lillian, his son Bella Jr., and his drug addiction, which at this point had moved on to Demerol, a morphine replacement that was meant to be less addictive, but was in fact just as addictive and more toxic to the human body. Oh. In 1949, Lugosi appeared on television for the first time with comedian Milton Berle. Lugosi had memorized the script for the sketch that he was to appear in, but he became confused on air when Berle began to ad-lib, and Lugosi's confusion ended up tanking the sketch. Sure. This is, of course, in the days of everything being live. Yeah. 
1951, he left for England to play Dracula on tour and ended up appearing in a low-budget comedy, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, which was the final film in the long-running drag comedy series about Mother Riley, who was the first British guy pretending to be an old lady for laughs character. Oh. Yeah. Great. A dubious distinction. Uh, The film was not successful, hence why it was the last Mother Riley film. Uh, But Lugosi was enjoying appearing in these comedies, and so he agreed to appear in the farce Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, which was produced (laughs) by Real Art Pictures, uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, were re-releasing his old movies at the time. Yeah. Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla was a huge flop, but it brought Lugosi into contact with Alex Gordon because it was being made during the time that Gordon was suing real art. Um, So they both kind of bonded over, like, grumbling about real art. (laughs) And then, of course, Gordon put Lugosi in touch with Wood. In 1953, uh, Lugosi's fourth wife, Lillian, who'd been married to him since 1933, divorced him after the 71-year-old Bella became jealous when his 42-year-old wife became the assistant to 52-year-old actor Brian Donlevy. Now, after she divorced Lugosi, Lillian did indeed marry Donlevy, so, I mean, I guess his jealousy was a little justified, but it did lose him his wife. And with Lillian and Bella Jr. gone, Lugosi was alone, without work, owing a lot of money, and with a crippling drug addiction. Meanwhile, the sex reassignment surgery of Christine Jorgensen in 1952 made headlines across the United States. Exploitation movie producer George Weiss wanted to cash in with a cheap Z movie called I Changed My Sex. Wood pitched to Weiss that his own transvestism made him the perfect choice to write and direct this movie. And we should clarify that transvestite is the um, accepted term for someone who cross-dresses or is trans or non-binary. You know, that kind of, I don't identify with the sex I was assigned at birth. In the 1950s, a distinction was made between transvestite and transsexual and the word transgender wasn't really part of the parlance we don't really use transsexual or transvestite anymore we use transgender we use non-binary we use gender fluid a lot of other terms the distinction in the 1950s was that a transvestite was someone who dressed in clothing of the opposite sex to the one they were born in and transsexual was someone who had gotten a sex reassignment operation or had like what we now call transitioned yeah um and obviously things full time instead of (laughs) part-time right (laughs) obviously there's a lot of overlap between those two things and the ways that they overlap with the modern sort of conception of the transgender identity are you know not a hundred percent but definitely a large overlap as well and of course transvestite overlaps with transgender but it also overlaps with drag queens and drag performers in a way that's significant because not all you know drag performers are trans or non-binary or anything like that right and in fact wood was very um insistent on the fact that he was a transvestite but he was not wanting to change his sex he was not gay he was like a regular heterosexual man who just liked wearing women's clothes he's very insistent that he's not gay Mm -hmm. um as i'm sure you will explain in glenn or glenda that's right wood cast himself as the lead role in what would become glenn or glenda a semi-autobiographical docudrama that sort of served as Wood's attempt to grapple with his own gender identity issues. It stars his girlfriend, Dolores Fuller, playing the lead character's girlfriend, Lyle Talbot as a confused police inspector, and Lugosi as the scientist in horror movie-inspired non-sequitur framing scenes that are enigmatically divorced from the main film. Yes. In Glenn or Glenda, 
Wood takes great pains to be like, I'm not like those other transvestites who might try to trick you into sleeping with the wrong sex. <laughs> I'm a straight transvestite. I'm normal. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting watch for that regard because exactly as Ben says, Edward is clearly grappling with what his own identity is and it's very interesting to watch and to almost like psychoanalyze. He's he's basically inviting you to because he's putting all of his psychological problems like on display and working through them in real time over the course of the movie, right? Yeah. And especially from a 2020 understanding of, like, gender identity and gender issues. And gender norms. Right. It's very interesting to see. And the overall impression you kind of get, the movie is a plea for tolerance for transvestites. But it employs a unfortunately common strategy that is sometimes used by minorities when asking for tolerance from the mainstream. Which is putting down other minorities in a way to say like, hey, I'm more like you, not like those other people. And so it ends up being a very like bizarrely homophobic and transphobic movie for a movie that's telling you to like accept people who dress in opposite gender clothing, right? It's 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 a watch. Yeah. Lugosi was paid $5,000 for his appearance, which was a quarter of the movie's paltry $20,000 budget. Uh, but that was a pretty good payday for the continually underpaid Lugosi. Glenn or Glenda was shot in four days. <laughs> and was that, That's not surprising, having seen it. And it was released in April of 1953. It establishes a lot of Wood's sort of trademark stylistic tics, like various levels of nonsensical narration, dream sequences... Uh, non sequitur dialogue and the zombie walk. The zombie walk, um, of course, very very cheap. You know, sets, poor acting, and then copious use of stock footage to pad out the running time. The film was only released in exploitation theaters in certain parts of the United States, and it was not successful. Wood's second film, a film noir called Jailbait would be co-written by Wood and Gordon, and then produced and directed by Wood. It once again featured Fuller and Talbot, and it was shot for $22,000, and was released by Halco, the producers of Mesa of Lost Women and Neanderthal Man, and it featured the score of Mesa of Lost Women in its entirety. Jailbait is considered to have one of the most coherent storylines of an Ed Wood film, thanks to being co-written by Alex Gordon, uh, but it was also not successful. Wood's next project would originate as a script by Gordon called The Atomic Monster, which Wood would rewrite and retitle as Bride of the Atom. This would be a full-fledged horror movie inspired by his favorite films when he was a youth, like Murders in the Rue Morgue, White Zombie, and The Corpse Vanishes. Hey, all of those have Bella Lugosi in Yes! Them. Compared to the contemporary crop of horror flicks of the 1950s, Bride of the Atom was a deliberate throwback to the B-horror films of the 1940s, uh, resembling very closely films like The Devil Bat. Um, al- also with Bella Lugosi. Lug- yes. uh, albeit, Bride of the Atom would have some lip service paid to atomic energy instead of glands being the like scientific explanation in order to like bring it up to date to the 1950s. Sure. Wood wrote the part of the mad scientist for Bella Lugosi specifically, and Lugosi would be paid $1,000 for his participation. That's a pay cut from Glenn or Glenda, but it was a better role. Um, Lugosi was very enthusiastic about the part, which was probably the best role written for him in about a decade. On set, Wood had crew standing by with cue cards out of concern that Lugosi's advanced age and poor physical condition would make it difficult for him to memorize his lines. Uh, But Lugosi insisted that he would have no difficulties and indeed never needed the cards and recited his long speeches in the movie to standing ovations by the crew. Wood wrote the script's female lead for his girlfriend, Dolores Fuller, 
while for the movie's monster, he cast professional wrestler Tor Johnson. <laughs> Born Carl Erik Tor Johansson in 1902 in Sweden, at his peak, Tor Johnson stood 6 foot 3 or 1.91 meters tall and weighed 440 pounds or about 200 kilograms. He's a beast. Yes. He had a full head of blonde hair, but he shaved his head for his villainous wrestling persona, the Super Swedish Angel. <laughs> He'd been acting in bit parts since he moved to California in 1934 as heavies, thugs, strong men, etc. The typical roles for right. the Super Swedish Angel. Exactly. In a minor role as patrolman Paul Kelton is actor Paul Marco. He was born Angelo Inzalaco in 1927, and he was a drama kid growing up, uh, doing, you know, plays in school and stuff like that. And then he served in the Navy in World War II and acted in small parts in films afterwards. Marco would go on to play Kelton in later Ed Wood films Plan 9 from Outer Space and Night of the Ghouls. Fans jokingly refer to these three films as the Kelton Trilogy. Wood worked to get funding for Bride of the Atom by canvassing L.A. for individual investors. <laughs> so That's not going to go well. Right. So rather than having a production company, a studio, a distributor, whoever putting up the money, he was basically going around and holding fundraisers and getting, you know, this person's going to give $700 here, this person's going to give $500 here, and the promise was always like, okay, you'll get this percentage of the profits to yeah. pay you back, right? He's pulling the producers. Right. We can do it. We can do it. Me and you. Just not intentionally trying to fail. And committing fraud. Yeah. I hope. I hope he's not committing fraud. No. So in the process of doing this, he met 37-year-old aspiring actress Loretta King. According to Dolores Fuller, King promised to secure greater funding for Wood enough to make the movie in exchange for playing the lead female role, which had been written for Fuller. Wood agreed and recast Fuller as a cameo, making Loretta King the new female lead. Filming began in October of 1954, but halted after three days when the money ran out. King, for her part, denied ever offering Wood any money and chalked up what happened to a misunderstanding on Wood's part. Mm. This kind of like he said, she said, contradictory stories about Ed Wood's films are really common. Um, the biopic by Tim Burton does a pretty good job of trying to depict events in such a way that makes everyone's story true. So the required funds for the completion of the movie were ultimately provided by rancher and meatpacker Donald McCoy, who was against nuclear testing and liked how the script warned against it. So he gave the money necessary. Um, $70,000 was the budget for Bride of the Atom, which is still, you know, immensely low for a movie. Um, but for a single individual to provide, that's a lot. It also is a way bigger budget than Wood had ever had. He did impose two conditions on Wood in exchange for the money. The first was that his son, Tony McCoy, play the lead. And the second was that the movie end with an atomic explosion. Many of Wood's crew were people that he worked with regularly. He basically got the same band of people over and over again, um, largely made up of, like, old-timers who had experience but no one would hire anymore. His cinematographer for Bride of the Atom, William C. Thompson, had shot Glenner Glenda and Jailbait and would go on to shoot the Ed Wood films The Violent Years, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Final Curtain, Night of the Ghouls, and The Sinister Urge. We've seen William C. Thompson's work before on the show, however, because he shot, way back in 1934, Sex Maniac. Oh, so he's used to this scene. He's used to this, yeah, to the indie exploitation horror movie scene, yeah. Like many of Ed Wood's movies, copious public domain stock footage is included in Bride of the Atom. 
the octopus monster in the film is portrayed by a combination of this stock footage and a mechanical octopus prop. This prop was owned by Republic Pictures and had been made for their 1948 film Wake of the Red Witch. There are contradictory accounts as to whether Wood rented the prop or stole it. Um, but what is known for sure is that when the crew showed up to pick up the prop from the Republic's Pictures prop warehouse, the warehouse was locked, and the crew had to break into the warehouse at Wood's insistence to get the octopus. And then they took the octopus and forgot the mechanical motor that made it move, requiring the actors in the film to move the tentacles around themselves to make it seem animate as they struggled with the octopus in the water. Wow. During the film's post-production, Fuller and Wood broke up. This was due to a lot of things. I'm sure that recasting her with this actress who didn't end up providing any money probably didn't help things. Um, However, according to Fuller, it was not due to Wood's transvestism. Uh, It was due to his drinking and her growing realization that she would not be able to achieve her personal or professional goals staying with him. She sort of saw, if she stayed with him, a future where they died penniless. So she broke up with him. After splitting from Wood, her acting career would lead to her writing songs for the Elvis Presley movie Blue Hawaii, and she would ultimately write 12 songs for Elvis, including Rockahula Baby, and go on to, like, a decent career as a pop songwriter in the 1960s. That's neat. Wood, meanwhile, would marry aspiring actress Norma McCarty during this period, who did not know about his transvestism. Bella Lugosi, meanwhile, checked himself into rehab for his drug addiction during the film's post-production, becoming the first Hollywood actor to publicly enter rehab, getting more publicity for this than he had in years. Dolores Fuller organized the premiere of Bride of the Atom on May 11, 1955, as a fundraising benefit for Lugosi's hospital bills, with a cocktail party preceding the film. That's really nice of her. Because mm-hmm. by this point, she's broken up with Ed Wood. That's right. So she has no obligations to any of this. Mm-hmm. The premiere did not go over well. And ultimately, Lugosi's hospital bills were actually paid by Frank Sinatra when he read the news stories about Lugosi's condition and uh, decided to do something about it. This shocked Lugosi because he had never met Sinatra ever in his life. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Way to go, Sinatra. Bride of the Atom had a hard time finding a distributor, and ultimately it was Alex Gordon's lawyer, Samuel Arkoff, who would arrange the film's distribution deal under the new title of Bride of the Monster, securing it a wide release in 1956. This is Edward's first wide-release film, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. It was the only Edward picture to turn a profit, but Wood had oversold the movie to his investors. So he did pull a producer. We can do it! We can do it. Which left him with no money left over. And because Arkoff had arranged the distribution, he ended up, in fact, the biggest financial winner of all the partners. Uh, His profits from Bride of the Monster were the greatest of anyone involved in the film, and they enabled him to found American Releasing Corporation with Nicholson. Today, Bride of the Monster is in the public domain, meaning that there are many releases of varying quality all over the internet and on home video. Um, A lot of the, like, you know, like the paid version on YouTube, if you see the one that you can rent for like $4 or whatever, uh, have been colorized. There's a lot of colorized versions on DVD because if you can colorize a film, that's a way to be able to copyright it um, because you've made a significant change to the original piece and therefore charge money for it. I would recommend always avoiding colorized films or films that have been greatly altered from their original release in that kind of way. Our recommendation, if you're looking for Bride of the Monster on home video, is the Image Entertainment DVD from the Ed Wood box set of 2004, if you can find it. 
Well, folks, hopefully you can find it. And if you can't, you'll be able to watch along on YouTube. Don't worry. Yeah, you'll find a way. Uh, You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Bride of the Monster from 1955, directed by Ed Wood. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Bride of the Monster from 1955, directed by Ed Wood. What did you think, Ben? So, if I can be real with you for a sec. Always. This is honestly not bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like, compared to Glen or Glenda, or to Plan 9 from Outer Space, this is basically a real movie. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's not bad compared to non-Ed Wood horror B-movies. It's like, if you didn't know it was Ed Wood, you'd think this was a pretty good B-movie. Or if, like, this was the only Ed Wood movie you ever saw, you'd wonder, like, what the big, like, fuss is about Ed Wood versus, like, any of the other guys who were churning out cheap genre movies in the 1950s. Yeah. So it's pretty good. I recommend people check it out. Yeah, I think it goes a long way to showing the difference that, I guess, really, like, time and money can make. Time and money, but also, I think, a love or respect of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, we've seen movies in the past where people are like, well, this is just schlock. Who gives a fuck? Mm-hmm. Ed Wood gives a fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I just mean comparing it to his other films. Yeah. You know, I think this movie shows, like, you know, if you give someone the resources they need, they'll probably, you know, perform better. Yeah. Yeah. So let's establish a universal basic income. (laughs) Right. So before (laughs) we do that... Before we wrap up the show to go establish UBI, uh, let's talk about the story of this movie. So the film opens with two hunters being caught out in the swamp near a lake marsh. And marsh is just another word for swamp. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. Well, it's technically a different... I won't get into it. In any case, it's like lake swamp yeah, near the, the swamp. swamp. Yeah. In the jungle? Yeah. It is described as a jungle... Um, I'm just assuming that by jungle they mean, like, densely packed vegetation. It is just Griffith Park, but go on. So these two hunters are caught out in the swamp near Lake Marsh at night. And they say that there's been nightly thunderstorms and how that is completely unnatural. And I'm sitting here going, if they've been nightly... Why are you so unprepared for them? Sure. Fair enough. So they go up to the old Willow's house for shelter. This is the only building nearby for, like, ten miles. Mm -hmm. And it's, of course, got the, like, classic, like, you know, old dark house architecture aesthetic. A Dr. Eric Vornoff answers, and he sends them away. No, you cannot stay the night even for a single rose. (laughs) <laughs> this, of course, being Bella Lugosi. Yes. Also, what causes the hunters to run away? They're already a little on edge because people have gone missing in the swamp lately, and there's rumors that this house is abandoned and haunted by a monster. So they're on edge, and then Vornoff's assistant, Lobo, comes out. And Lobo is played by that wrestler, And he is dressed like Sinbad for some reason, and is very (laughs) large and in charge. Yeah, I mean, it's a six foot three, four hundred and forty pound guy, yeah, wearing like a street rat's vest and pants and no shoes. (laughs) So they run away from Lobo. As they were running away, one of the hunters falls into the swamp and is attacked by a giant octopus. 
the other man is trying to fire his gun at the octopus, but is stopped when he is attacked by Lobo. Now, this hunter awakes on the operating table of Dr. Vornoff, and Dr. Vornoff says, Now, you are very lucky. You are going to be experimented upon with atomic energy and become a superman. Because he's trying to make Captain America, basically. Yeah. Well, a Captain Vornoff, basically. Yeah. He's, um... He's strapped to this table, and he's got this device, like, pointing down on him that's, you know, supposed to be shooting him full of atomic rays or whatever to turn him into a superhuman who's also got, like, super size, like it's supposed to be a giant. And appropriately, I think, the prop for this device is a photograph enlarger, which makes, like, a twisted kind of sense to use as the, like, machine that's supposed to enlarge the people. It's fun. We have fun here. Mm. Vornoff does say, everyone else has died. If you succeed, you'll be superhuman. And if you don't, then you'll be dead. (laughs) He dies. (laughs) Now, with these two hunters missing, that makes 12 people gone missing in the swamps over the past three months. The police seem baffled. We have a Lieutenant Dick Craig on the case, um, and his police chief, Robbins is pretty supportive of Craig, which is, you know, nice to see that your boss supports you, even as you can't come up with any kind of evidence or theory as to what's going on. Mm -hmm. Dick Craig's fiance, Janet, is a reporter, and she's coming up with all the theories in the papers. She's the one who's come up with the idea that there's a monster in the swamp. Not to be confused with another movie, Strangler of the Swamp. Right. Now, she comes in and she's like, I want more details on this monster. And they're like, we don't know anything about the monster. You're the one who thinks thinks it's a monster. And she's like, shut up. I'm going to go get details. So she is going to go to the swamp by herself. Now, Craig is like, that woman, she's going to get herself hurt. And before he can go up after her, um, they have a Professor Vladimir Strowski come visit the police department. Now, this... Professor explains that he investigates monsters, basically. He is an expert in prehistoric creatures. Um, he's been at Loch Ness to investigate the monster there. And having heard stories of a monster here, he wants to try and help the police come up with a theory. And they're like, perfect. We'll get started tomorrow morning and, you know, we'll maybe find these people as well. We're told that this swamp is full of alligators, snakes quicksand, just like a death trap. But who knows, maybe it's a prehistoric monster. Janet, as I said, she's going up at night. There's nightly thunderstorms, so she has a car accident because of the amount of rain coming down. She passes out, and Lobo finds her and rescues her. And I say rescue because, you know, he saves her from a boa constrictor, Mm. but... He does bring her back to the house, so he didn't really rescue her. Yeah, he he collected her. Exactly. Side note, Janet is wearing an Angora hat. Angora fabric hat. Um, And Lobo takes this hat for himself. Um, Lobo is bald, so I'm like, yeah, his head must get cold. But he wears it on his belt like a little trophy, and he strokes it every now and then. Yeah, Lobo has an Angora fetish, just like someone else we know. She does wake up after being rescued, and Vornoff is like, Do not worry. Everything is fine. You should sleep now. And uses his Bella Lugosi hypnosis powers to put her back to sleep. The next morning, Lieutenant Craig and his partner, Marty, not McFly, um, show up at the march because they're supposed to meet Strowski here. But they find Janet's car. So they're like, oh, shit. So they drive back 10 miles to get to the nearest cafe uh, to call back to the head office. Um, And that starts a subplot I'm not going to go into of the police chief, Robbins, following up on Janet's movements and doing, like, a side investigation to figure out where she's gone missing. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, as the cops are back at the cafe, Strowski shows up on his own, and he finds the old Willow's place and heads inside without knocking and meets Dr. Vornoff. 
And this is when Strasky reveals that he is a foreign spy, heavily uh, insinuated to be a Russian spy. Yeah, Russian or German, but probably Russian. Probably Russian, despite his sometimes French accent. The accent's a little all over the place. It's just generically Eastern European. I think the biggest problem is that it doesn't match Lugosi's accent. <laughs> um, and Strzokski's like, hey, I'm here to bring you back to our home country. I know that you got exiled and made a laughing stock out of your theories of using atomic energy to create a race of superhumans, but we've realized the errors of our ways and that you were right, so come back. And Vornoff is like, no. <laughs> You kicked me out. I was exiled from my home country. I lost my wife and child. Uh, I have no home. The jungle is my home, as, as I am a savage animal. It's very intense. Yeah, the ghost really sells the hell out of his evil scientist speech. Vornoff continues that, you know, I'm going to make this race of superhumans uh, to take over the world. And Strzok is like, perfect. Then our country can take over the world. And Vronoff is like, not the country. Me! <laughs> and make my own laws! Nostrowski pulls out a gun, because he's like, I'm not taking no for an answer. But Lobo disarms him, and they throw him into the tank with the giant octopus. And that's the end of Strowski. <laughs> the shot where he's, like, got the gun on Lugosi, and then Lobo grabs him is like one of the shots in the movie that makes you go like huh all right ed wood like good job because it's like this two shot with strowski and lugosi that slowly pulls back to reveal that lobo's standing right behind strowski is pretty good yeah it was a good reveal the octopus is ridiculous because it, it does not move yeah it it's just as you remember from the ed wood biopic yeah so Lieutenant Craig and Marty are back from the cafe, and they discover Strowski's vehicle. So they decide to split up with Marty going to the beach, and Craig is going to go up to the old Willow's place. Meanwhile, Vornoff uses his hypnosis powers to bring Janet into the experiment room, and she's in a wedding dress. That Vornoff just, like, had, I guess? Yeah. You ready, know, that spare wedding dress. Ready to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fits perfectly. Now Lobo is like, I don't know. He's mute, but his expressions say it all. Like, I don't know. I don't want to experiment on Janet. And he gets whipped yeah. for not strapping Janet into the uh, experiment table. Just as they are about to turn on the experiment machine, Craig shows up. And he tries to stop it, but he gets captured by Lobo and chained to the wall. Mm -hmm. So they start up the experiment again. And Lobo's like, no, man, I'm really not happy with this. So he lets Janet loose, and it starts attacking Vornoff. He gets shot a couple times, but he powers through, just throwing Vornoff to the ground. Meanwhile, Janet is getting Craig released from the wall. In that time, Lobo has strapped Vornoff to his own experiment table, and now Lobo is the doctor doing the experiments. Right. And despite the fact that, like, Lobo's mute and he's this big hulking brute... He's been paying attention. Yeah, based on the evidence in this movie, like, we see Lugosi turn on the machine and it just keeps killing people, but Lobo turns on the machine on the doctor and... Craig does try to stop him because he does recognize, like... I'm a uh, lawful good. Right. I have to try to stop this. And he gets knocked unconscious as a result. Not before Lobo completely destroys Craig's shirt. Very Captain Kirk. Yes. Edward is not gay. He would like to remind you. He yes. is not gay. That's right. But the rancher's son does become shirtless for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Does the experiment and succeeds. Vornoff is now a superhuman. They've got Lugosi on lifts. Superhuman. Yeah, he is very tall. <laughs> He's in shoes that I feel like Abba would be very jealous of. <laughs> now superhuman Vornoff attacks and kills Lobo, causing, like, sparks and a fire to start in the basement. Superhuman Vornoff turns and grabs Janet, and Craig recovers from his unconsciousness, just in time to see them heading through the door. 
Now, as I said, that subplot of them trying to, of the police chief trying to find Janet, uh, that's from going off in the background, and it's resulted in him going, oh, she's at the Willows place, and bringing, like, the entire police department there. Mm-hmm. So by this time, the Willows house is surrounded by cops. We get a bit of a chase scene of Varnoff carrying Janet through the swamp and police not being able to shoot because what if they shoot Janet and a shirtless Craig following along. Um, eventually, Varnoff puts Janet down and gets shot 31 times. Yes. There's a conspicuously large, round, large boulder. At the top of a hill. At the top of a hill that I'm like, oh, Varnoff's going to use that to destroy some police officers. But no, fucking Craig pushes the boulder and it crushes Bornoff, tossing him into the swamp to be destroyed by his own giant octopus creation. Because of the fire in the house, it explodes. Sure. It's the end of a horror movie. And as Bornoff is fighting with the giant octopus, both of which are atomic creations, they get struck by lightning by the nightly thunderstorms. And they, too, explode in an atomic blast. Yeah, in a huge stock footage shot of a mushroom cloud that is apparently extremely localized because the police and Craig and Janet are all still just, you know, standing like 30 feet away from the octopus lake, looking at what's happening, being like, well... And they're fine. They aren't blinded. Nothing. (laughs) And... Chief Robbins is like, he tampered with God's domain. Roll credits! Mm -hmm. The end. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a better than expected movie, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. The stock footage isn't egregious. It's really just the octopus that gets the stock. Yeah. The actors are untalented, but not distractingly bad. The dialogue is offbeat, but not inane. The sets are cheap, but still evocative. The loca- Oh, yeah, the uh, <laughs> the ex- room where the experiments happen. Uh, they clearly wanted it to be dungeon-like, especially because you go through a secret passage to get there. But it's just painted on castle walls. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly painted on. But the sets for, like, inside the house before you get to the lab are pretty good. And, I, I agree. And, and he's even got, like, a real, like, turnaround-y... Um, fireplace thing to serve as the trap door the equipment in the experiment room is there it's not like the hugely strict fade and strict fade in equipment mm-hmm. that we see in like frankenstein but it's you know it works the uh location shooting is inauthentic but it's not like totally incongruous like you can kind of buy it because wood does use some stock footage of real swamps and stock footage of alligators and stuff to intercut with Griffith Park at night to kind of try to sell you on the idea. It is not guilty of a lot of, like, Poverty Row B-movie pacing sins. It's That's true. The cinematography and the editing in this movie is, like, basic, but it's not incompetent. Yeah. Yeah, this Ed Wood could honestly have, like, gone on to direct, like, episodes of Batman in the 1960s. If he had, like, just kept developing as a director with real backing and distributors, you know? Like, yeah, this isn't much worse than, like, an episode of the Adam West Batman show. Yeah. I don't think Ed Wood would ever become, like, a Coppola. Right, yeah. But I don't think he would be as considered so poorly if, you know, his career had continued to grow, Mm -hmm. as you've suggested. Mm Mm-hmm. As you said, the actors aren't terrible, Mm -hmm. but even their baseline, Lugosi is standout. Oh, yeah. Lugosi's performance is, like, surprisingly um, energetic. And evocative. Yeah. Like, he's old and he's thin, but there's nothing here to tell you that he's a guy addicted to toxic painkillers, you know? Yeah, and... There's a lot of pathos from him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically in his conversation with Strausky, where he's saying, I was exiled from my country, lost my wife and son, etc. Yeah. And part of that pathos is because it's true. Yeah. He's gone through the experience of being exiled from his country, 
there's probably a feeling of like being exiled from this industry for so long. Oh yeah, when he's talking about like how he was laughed at and how like you know he has to make do here in this like forsaken jungle place and stuff, and you can really hear Lugosi saying like I have to make do with being at this forsaken cheap B movie and like you know these kinds of things, and you know it's true that like once he became famous, um, you know they wanted him to come back to Hungary and he was like, no, partially because he wanted to restore the monarchy and it's fine. Lugosi's political views are not the point here, but like, <laughs> yeah, everything that he's saying, he can invest with his own, you know, life history. And it's probably on purpose because we know that Wood was friends with Lugosi. And even though Bell Lugosi's son, Bella Jr. would later accuse Ed Wood of, taking advantage of Lugosi in his old age. Um, the fact of the matter is like no one else was hiring Lugosi. No one else was giving him any money. Yeah. And everyone from Edwards Cruz who survived, you know, later to give interviews have said like, no, they were genuine friends. Like no one was taking advantage of anyone. Like genuinely they were friends. So it's likely that Wood knew stuff about Lugosi's life history and given that he wrote this part specifically for him, it's likely that the parallels are intentional. Yeah. And I think having the context of Lugosi's life, mm. you really see those parallels. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't have that context, Lugosi is bringing enough in his performance that you feel it either way. Yeah. It's still a good performance. And, uh, you know, ultimately like he seems to be having a blast like, he's, he's performing with gusto in addition to pathos, right? He just seems to be having a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't know anything really about Lugosi or why he decided to go to rehab at this point. But I think the fact that he went to rehab after making this movie shows that he was feeling inspired by the craft again in mm -hmm. some sort of way. Inspired to recognize that you know, it's time to seek help. Yeah. And like he came out of rehab, you know, basically telling um, reporters that he was excited to work again. Right. And that he was excited for his next Ed Wood movie. Yeah. And I think you can see that spark here. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really nice to see. Yeah. It is sad. Yes. Because it's not going to work out for him, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah. But it's still nice to see at this point in time in mm -hmm. his life. Tor Johnson doesn't really have much to do as Lobo, but, like, he's pretty effective in the role. Because <laughs> he just kind of needs to be there Big. with his physical <laughs> presence, yeah. Tony McCoy and Loretta King are not the best actors, but they're also not the worst breeding pair we've ever seen. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the worst guy... Definitely still goes to David Manners. <laughs> I don't know about Worst Girl, um, but neither of them are worst by far. The rest of the cast is fine or in small enough roles that it doesn't matter. If there's anything about the characters and the acting that doesn't work here, it's kind of the way that Wood uses archetypes and kind of um, like stock dialogue almost from like movies to create characters and you feel like there's a bit of a disconnect between what you're thinking the movie wants you to think about these characters and how they're actually coming across. Like Janet Lawton is supposed to be like the tough girl, spunky reporter, right? She's supposed to be Lois Lane, but she kind of comes off as a bit of a bitch. Like she plays the like sassy thing in such a way, I think it's probably because the actress doesn't have the charisma, the natural charisma you need to pull it off. But, like, instead of coming off as, like, kind of sassy, she just kind of comes off as mean. Yeah, and you could tell that they were trying to do some of that, like, His Girl Friday... Banter. Banter between her and Craig. But it doesn't work because she just comes off as being mean, and he comes off as, like, being um, too, like, earnest to really be, like, sparring with her. Yeah, almost, like, naive. Like, he doesn't see what she's saying as jabs. He's And it's not like he's just, like, a pushover. He's just not recognizing them as jabs. Yeah, it's like when you realize that, like, your friend is in an abusive relationship and they don't know it. And then, you know, you have 
Craig and you have the police chief, they're supposed to be heroic characters, but they kind of come off not great. For um, some reason, the the chief has a pet bird on his shoulder. Right. And we take time to be like, hey, look at this pet bird drinking water. Patrolman Kelton, who is the police chief's, like, secretary, basically, um, who then gets to come on his first in-the-field assignment when the cops all go to surround the old Willow's place, is clearly supposed to be, like, a kind of goofy comic relief character, but he just comes across as, like, an asshole for no reason. Um, an insecure asshole who is brown-nosing. Yeah. I don't think the movie means to be portraying the cops poorly, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. The roles in the movie that don't have this, like, disconnect between, you know, what Ed wants us to think of them and what we do think of them are uh, Vornoff and Lobo, because I think they're genre characters from the horror genre that, like, Wood is more comfortable with. I think so. In the context setting, we talked about the earnestness that we see from Ed Wood mm. in his movie Glen or Glenda. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that kind of earnestness here, um, and you see that Wood has a lot of love for what he's doing. Like, mm -hmm. it's just very clear, uh, a lot of love for B-movies and the horror genre tropes mm -hmm. that he's playing with here. And part of why I can see that love is he knows how and why those tropes happen. Right. They don't just happen just because, like, Lobo doesn't turn on Janet on a dime. We show him petting the Angora hat mm -hmm. multiple times and coming through with not the best, but doable acting that Lobo's uncomfortable with Janet being experimented upon. Mm -hmm. You know, there's little things like that that Wood is taking the care and time to include mm -hmm. that someone who didn't care wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. He he knows what the beats are that he needs to hit. Yeah. And everyone kind of has motivation. Mm -hmm. Like, it might be as simple as, like, I'm doing my job as a lieutenant looking into this, but everyone still does have a motivation. Yeah. Like, end of the day... The script is not a masterpiece. You know, the cast is not Oscar-worthy. Like, it's still not good, but it has that kind of, like, genuine feel that you get watching, like, fan films. Yeah. And stuff like that, to the point where you can't really feel mean about it being bad, because it, you know, you get the feeling that everybody making this was, like, having a good time. Yeah. It's not good... It's wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Bride of the Monster is a very fun watch if you're a Lugosi fan. Definitely. And it comes across mostly as like just a good-spirited throwback to a kind of horror movie that wasn't really being made anymore by 1955. And, you know, there's certainly things in it that are bizarre, like the Angora fetish stuff, or that are like fun to laugh at, like the non-working octopus. But, like... Yeah, this is, you know, just as good as not better as some of the other stuff we've seen. Definitely. And I think that's a good transition to ranking. Absolutely. So where were you looking, Ben? Well, I started my hunt by looking at Scared to Death, which is down at 148. And I sure. knew that this was better. Believe it or not, this is much more coherent than Scared to Death is. It really is. Above Scared to Death, we have stuff like the Spider-Woman Strikes Back, which isn't great. I kept kind of making my way up, and I found Bride of the Gorilla at 133. And above Bride of the Gorilla is Song at Midnight. And I went, okay, if you sat me down and you said, okay, we can either watch Bride of the Gorilla, which is the movie where Raymond Burr is a were-gorilla, or we can watch Bride of the Monster, which would you rather... I'm going to choose Bride of the Monster. Yeah. Um, like Raymond Burr? Sarah's giving me a big grin, by the way. And, like, wiggling my eyebrows. <laughs> but I would much prefer to watch Bride of the Monster. Yeah. So, 133, that's my floor. Okay. Working up from there, we've got a mix of, like, kind of movies that are neither here nor there 
fish nor fowl, good nor bad. Um, but I thought that this definitely could go above Neanderthal Man, which is at 124. So I kept working my way up, and I spotted the Devil Bat at 118, which is another Lugosi Mad Scientist movie. And I think this might be better than the Devil Bat. Like, the Devil Bat's fun because it's so fucking stupid. Oh, absolutely. But I think in terms of employing horror tropes well, uh, Bride of the Monster is better. Because the Devil Bat, the thing that you're laughing at is that they are employing these horror tropes so ridiculously. Well, and the other thing is, like, would his octopus which is the monster right it's only stock footage or a non-functional prop but wood knows what his limitations are in a way right like the octopus being kind of something that the actors have to lie on top of and writhe around in is bad but like he doesn't keep shots on it very long when the actors are doing that like he frequently cuts away and back and around to other things so that we never have to see someone moving tentacles around with their arms for too long and when we cut back they are further enwrapped in the arms right. and he knows that you know it's stock footage that he's using for the octopus but he never makes the mistake of trying to like marry that stock footage too much with stuff he shot he always keeps it separate so that nothing ruins the illusion the devil bat, you know, has a big giant killer bat in it, and it's just the dumbest, stupidest looking thing on the face of the earth, and it's shown so much. Yeah. So right above the devil bat is the silent version of Queen of Spades. Sure. And, like, I think on a crap level, that's probably better. Like, it's from, like, 1916, but, like, it's a cool, like, Russian silent horror movie. So my ceiling here is putting it at 118, and my floor is 133. Okay. I think that this is probably the right area. I'll be honest, I was looking higher. Oh, cool. Um, but I wasn't completely sure about my range in the first place. Um, I knew that I wouldn't put this above White Zombie at 64. Mm. Yeah, that's very high. Yeah. So, but that that's like comparing the ghosty. You right. know, I knew it wasn't going to go above White Zombie. Right. Um, but I didn't really know what to do with my range. So looking around your area, I think that's a great ceiling. The Invisible Ray at 120 is also a Lugosi film. Lugosi Karloff. Yeah. And I think this is better than that. So to narrow your range between Queen of Spades... The Devil Bat, and The Unknown. The Unknown is from 1927 and has Lon Chaney Sr. as Alonzo the Armless, and he gets crushed by a horse at the end. But Mm -hmm. otherwise, it's kind of a rom-com. I mean, it's a pretty fucked up rom-com. Alonzo the Armless has arms, but he pretends to be armless so he can get close to Joan Crawford, who doesn't like to be touched by men. So, in order to really get with her, he decides to actually have his arms amputated, but that takes so long, what with his recovery, that she actually gets over her fear of being touched and ends up with the guy from Phantom of the Opera. And so Alonzo, the now actual armless, plans to kill the guy from Fan of the Opera. Um, and gets crushed by a horse, horse during that process. Scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, like I yeah, it's a messed up rom-com, but it's still a rom-com. Mm. Um, I feel like right below Queen of Spades above Devil Bat makes the most sense. All right, I'm good with that. Cool. Let's do it. Entering the list at the new number 118... It's Bride of the Monster from 1955, directed by Edward D. Wood Jr. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. We love to hear from people, especially if you disagree uh, with where we have ranked something, or if we have missed a film, so you can reach us through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. New episodes of Scream Scene come out every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and however you like to listen to your podcasts by subscribing through our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting services that allow you to do such things. 
Um, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are really helpful, for instance. Another way that you can be helpful for the show is by sharing it um, over social media uh, to your friends. It's October, it's the Halloween season, and listen, I know there's a lot going on in the world right now that's asking for people's attention, but I think people also want to have some spooky time to themselves where they can ignore all of that other stuff, and so every time someone says to you, like, hey, what are some horror movies I can watch that are probably public domain and therefore I can just watch on YouTube that I've never heard of before, you can say, there's this whole list of them from this podcast I listened to. <laughs> if you have the means, you can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. We are putting out a bonus episode about HUAC this month for our patrons, and we're also putting out an audiobook adaptation of The Music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. So if either of those things sound enticing to you, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We were recently guests on Rank and Vile podcast on their Shingojira episode, and we also just had an appeal on the ranking of Captive Wild Woman. That episode came out earlier this week. So lots of cool things to listen to. That's right. Speaking of cool things to listen to, what do we have in store for the listeners next week, Ben? Well, we're heading over to the UK for a horror-slash-crime anthology film. Okay. It is three segments uh, with three different directors. One of the segments does star Orson Welles. Oh, neat. It's three cases of murder uh, from a variety of different directors. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!